Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 52, Law and Order, Rhode Island. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to back the show, then please consider leaving an iTunes review. It's one of the quickest and easiest ways to help spread the show to new listeners. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener John. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. In our last episode, we looked at religious developments in Rhode Island during the mid-17th century. We covered the two religious trends in the colony, which led the colonists to become Quakers and Baptists. Today, I want to turn towards the secular realm and deal with things which were a bit more materialistic. While the Rhode Islanders were ultra-Puritans, they were not religious recluses, looking to escape from the evils of the world. In fact, they viewed it as almost the opposite. 17th century Americans had a fear of the untamed nature of their new home, and had a deep fear that the precious gift of civilization that Europe and Europe alone had developed could be lost. They had manners, morality, and culture. The Indians had none. Everything must be done to protect their refinement. They had priorities, which were practical, at least. Their first priority was to secure clean water and a food supply, for example, rather than the finer things in life. With their various crops and access to the sea, they were able to have a society which was primarily agricultural, but there were a few specialised professions. Each town needed a sawmill, for example. This was a degree of simple self-sufficiency, but it wasn't the ultimate level of civility that the Rhode Islanders had in mind. They were a very religious people. Bibles were necessary. Other books too. Glass windows, iron tools, spices, gin, ammunition. All these were needed, but couldn't be acquired locally. They would need to be imported. A recurring feature of the story of the United States until the 20th century was the lack of liquid capital on the frontier. While they had things they could produce themselves quite easily, such as crops, Whenever anything more was needed, it caused trouble. As the border moved west, financial trouble will be a theme we will come back to again and again, but it had its origins here. How were the Rhode Islanders going to acquire the features of Western civilization? Furs were an early solution, but the area was generally quite swampy and the forests didn't have that many animals to make the trade profitable, for any length of time, particularly with the more powerful colonies surrounding them. What was the Rhode Island fur trade compared to New Netherland or Massachusetts? They settled on livestock and other agricultural products, such as garden produce, cheese, tobacco, as well as timber. These could be exported. The problem for Rhode Island was, again, the other colonies. 
Other traders from other colonies had more capital, and so were able to edge out the Rhode Islanders. There were many open markets, such as the Newfoundland fishing fleet, the Caribbean, and the New Englanders themselves, but they would generally get goods from the Old World via Boston. Competition was fierce, but eventually a Rhode Island trade network managed to establish itself, mostly centred on the Long Island Sound and the newly established Carolina. This was the economic world of Rhode Island, primarily agricultural, with some specialist artisans. This was in addition to a group of traders who created the wealth to bring in the much-desired imports. Trading activity mostly sorted itself out, but the agricultural aspect of Rhode Island needed more order, which was the key factor in the development of Rhode Island politics. I want to assume that most of you are familiar with the William Golding book, Lord of the Flies, or, at the very least, the Simpsons version of it, Season 9, Episode 14, Das Bus. The plot is that a group of children are stranded on a desert island. They try to establish order and democracy, but they quickly turn to their baser instincts. Without the rule of law, the children turn on each other, and before long, there is murder most foul. It makes the point that civilization, so prized by the 17th century colonists, is just an illusion of tradition. Once you are placed into a different land, the illusion vanishes, and law and order are notoriously difficult to establish. That, at least, is the basic version of it. Rhode Island, partly due to its very unusual origin of being the people driven away from all the other colonies, went through this sort of crisis in its early years. It wasn't sure where exactly authority came from. They were all immigrants, and so understanding how the system worked, where they came from, is very important. They lived in an old country. England had a great many traditions going back centuries, some millennia. There existed an unquestioned public authority, which either came from the crown, from the local dignitary, or from local custom. These things went back into time immemorial. You would accept the local town rulings, because that was the way it had always been. All of a sudden, they were thrust into a new world. People could set up agreements and agricultural regulations. That was fine. But... What happened when someone broke them? A town could give a ruling, but why did anyone have to listen? Their old villages would have had centuries to build up prestige and authority so that people would listen, but this village had been founded last year. Everyone had been there just as long, so why did someone have to listen to anyone else? There were some social conventions which survived the transition. A town itself couldn't be ignored, but the judicial apparatus of the town could be. Judges could be denounced as having no real authority. Portsmouth attempted to set out a social compact in the manner of the pilgrims, being a town run on biblical laws 
with Coddington as a judge. But they also had this mixing with town meetings which quickly gained the aura of Old England. This couldn't last very long. While the idea of biblical judges was attractive in theory, in practice they didn't like such a concentration of power. Elders were chosen to assist the judge, and then they were to report their activities to the town. Gorton stirred off enough trouble that eventually Coddington just quit the town and travelled to the other end of Aquidneck to found Newport. Anne Hutchinson's husband, William, was chosen to be the new judge. This didn't last very long. Many of the citizens of Portsmouth wanted fairer land distribution. They came to terms with Coddington and his new town. He abandoned the practice of Mosaic law and instead adopting a process of English customs and proclaiming his direct subordination to King Charles. He set up a government to govern both the towns on Aquidneck. This system was far more orderly, particularly once Gorton was expelled and William Hutchinson had died. This new government, commonwealth, state, whatever you want to call it, lasted for several years. It loudly proclaimed both its democratic element and its subordination to King Charles. It would have a governor and two assistants who were elected from each town. In practice, it wasn't a democracy, but more an oligarchy dominated by Coddington. Meanwhile, in Providence, Roger Williams tried basing their government upon the laws that governed human society, rather than a theoretical concept. He saw society as based upon families, and so Providence was based upon family units. Each head of the family would have one vote, and arbitrators or judges could be appointed case by case to settle specific disputes. This was very idyllic, and had several practical issues. How could someone who violated the agreement be punished, aside from being attacked by the rest of the citizens? There was also no way for individuals to be brought into a social system based upon family blocks. How were new settlers to be introduced to the mix? How were they to deal with the Indians? It soon became obvious that a more sophisticated government was necessary. Land was set aside for the original settlers. This was an attempt to head off a later reluctance to allow new immigrants, also fleeing persecution. Newcomers needed to swear to obey the town rules before joining, something which in 1640 became the combination, a sort of social compact. Gorton was again part of the process of disruption that led to these developments. It's quite ironic that Gorton's own Warwick never had to deal with these issues, because by the time it became a settled community, the governmental structure had settled into place. But anyway, there were still issues about the authority of these actions, with many viewing that the only source of authority could come from the king. Indeed, this same conclusion was reached by people all over Rhode Island. All other theories simply weren't enough. This was why it was so important for the Rhode Islanders to guess a royal charter. 
the towns might base their laws upon English precedent, but that simply wasn't enough. The process of this finally taking place and forming a cohesive colony would take most of the 17th century. As we've briefly covered in a previous episode, this process began in 1644 by a patent given to Providence Plantation. It implied that the towns of the region should gather together under some sort of central government. This was what was needed, a judiciary with authority from the king in order to solve their disputes. But in practice, they were too independent for this to work. The towns kept setting up their own courts, which would contest decisions of the central judiciary. They wanted the authority from above, but not the regulations that came with it. The patents also caused other problems. You might have gathered that Massachusetts did not like Rhode Island, considering these extremists to be a thorn in its side. The very last thing it wanted was for these upstarts to get legitimacy from Parliament. Aquidneck also resented the primacy that was given to Providence. It seems that Coddington didn't want to be in the same colony as Gorton, and also feared losing power. He attempted to keep Aquidneck as an independent colony, seeking out protection from Massachusetts and Plymouth. But both wanted nothing to do with Aquidneck, aside from perhaps annexing it. Williams spent the immediate years trying to gather recruits to his tentative new regime, while gradually the government of Aquidneck fell apart. The legislative element of the government had already collapsed by 1646, and as things got worse, Aquidneck was forced to agree basic terms with Williams for the new government, and a constitutional convention of sorts was held at Plymouth in 1647. It was to be a democratic government with a general court which would act as a legislature, but already existing rights and political bodies would exist. A pledge was taken, oaths, after all, being a controversial subject. A body of eight officials was to be elected, to act mostly as the judicial function. These would include one assistant from each of the four towns, a general secretary, a general sergeant, a general treasurer, and a president who would act as a chief officer. The president and the assistants had powers as magistrates, and were the bench of judges. The secretary, known as the recorder, would be the clerk at trials. The general treasurer was the only official with something resembling administrative duties, and these were not very many. The colonial government didn't have much in the way of finances for quite some time. The judicial focus of the body was further made clear when two more elected officials were added to the roster, a general attorney and a general solicitor. The Code of Laws which was drawn up was mostly based upon English statutes, with elements from scripture and English common law. Essentially, a mixture of scripture and authority from Parliament was used to give authority to the new system, and the details were worked out by law. The Rhode Islanders were very optimistic with their brand new system, and I hope that you, my dear listener, will join me next time 
when we explore exactly why this system didn't work. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there are lots of ways you can go about supporting it. One is to leave a review on iTunes, a very simple process. If you want to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, you can sign up for our membership program. Signing up gives you exclusive access to a new episode every two weeks for the cost of only $4.99 per month. If this sounds like something you're interested in, just head over to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. You can also continue the conversation on social media, like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then feel free to send me an email. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.